Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Sonia Leeson and you're listening to the Love Mondays podcast, The Power of Resilience, stories of struggle and success from inspiring entrepreneurs. In this series, I will be interviewing business leaders, entrepreneurs and business owners to learn more about their incredible true life stories and how they overcame adversity to build a killer business that makes a real difference in the world. Stay tuned to learn more about their game-changing strategies which took them from struggle to success. I'm really excited for today's interview as I am speaking to Neil Fahey, a professional cyclist who has won a staggering 22 medals at major championships, 17 of which are gold, including the Paralympics in London in 2012. I talked to Neil about his sporting career and how hitting his low point was the driver that spurred him into achieving incredible things in professional sport. We also talk about his pivot into performance coaching in business, where he is now co-founder of a new company, teaching insights and lessons from elite sport into the business world. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. No worries. It's a pleasure to have you. I wanted to get you on because you've got a really, really interesting story. And as soon as I kind of partly met you being in the same room and heard a little bit about your story and what you were up to I thought it was really fascinating so thank you for coming on and tell us a little bit more about it can you just give us a basic overview of 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 who you are and what you do yeah so um, I guess I'm most known for being a a full-time professional cyclist Um, I actually I have a visual impairment so I ride on a tandem bicycle, so a bicycle for two people with a fully sighted person on the front. I ride on the back and I've been fortunate enough to essentially make a career out of that for the past decade, competing at multiple world championships, Paralympics and and having, a, would say, a fair amount of success along the way. That's really incredible. Whereabouts have you kind of, because I know I've actually seen your gold medals. Where, where did you win medals? Yeah, so... Um, my biggest is winning Paralympic gold, and that was in at the London Games back in 2012, which hopefully some of your listeners will remember fondly. It was a, a pretty special time in our country where everyone was absolutely buzzing. So being part of that and winning gold, that was obviously the pinnacle of my career. But I've also won four golds at Commonwealth Games for Team Scotland and 12 gold medals at World Championships to date. Hopefully a few more on the way in the near future. <laughs> yes, because you've got one coming up, haven't you? You're uh, you're in training at the moment. Yeah, we're into that kind of final phase now towards race time. Um, things are looking good, but things can change very quickly in sport. So I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic, but uh, we'll see what happens on race day. So this would be your thirteenth, would it be, for um, world championships? Yeah. So I'm actually I compete in two events. So I'm hoping to get my thirteenth and fourteenth all going well. Um, oh. But you know, it's uh, there's a lot of competition out there and part of being at the top of the world is that everyone else is aiming for you and uh, there are definitely a few who have the potential to beat me Um, but as I say I'm in a good place right now and it's exciting you know being at the you know at the pinnacle in your sport and having people chase you I'd much rather be in that position than than the ones who are being (laughs) chasing. (laughs) Yeah than you chasing everybody else. Mm. How do you um how do you kind of I suppose cope's the wrong word, but how do you deal with that? Do you feel pr- that pressure that other people are kind of coming for you? Or does it really kind of drive you to, to kind of be better and train harder? Uh, both, really. I still get very nervous before any race. Um, yeah. But what I've developed is that ability to to cope with it, to know 
what I'm going through every time I come towards a race event, that feeling of nerves is normal and I can perform at my highest despite those things. Um, so having that pressure of coming towards a race, knowing people are gunning for you and knowing that in many ways, particularly when you go to Paralympic Games, that this performance could define your career. And that one moment, which happens every four years, could be career defining. It's, it's a huge amount of pressure on yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's always going to be yourself that puts the most pressure on you. But it's something I've developed over the years is that that coping mechanisms and realizing what works best for me. Um, and it's not not always the same for everyone, but I'm someone who very like on a race day, I like to feed off the emotion of it and harness that emotion in a positive way. And I think I've become quite good at that. That's really, really good, actually, and a really good insight, because I think, you know, in or out of sport, anybody can feel the pressure. And actually, if you can create strategies to help you turn that into something positive and an actual drive rather than something that kind of holds you back, I think you want to a winner, aren't you, really? Yeah, and it's a very interesting one that there's huge crossover between anxiety, nervousness and excitement. And yeah, yeah, I think it's point. very easy, very, very easy for us to come towards the situations that scare us a little bit and that anxiety hits and you think it's a negative thing and you want to step back because self-preservation kicks in. So you want to step back into somewhere that's a bit safer and not put yourself out there. But mm. just that realization that it's the same symptoms of excitement. You're feeling all the same things, your your heart rate increasing, you know, the hairs in your back, your neck standing up, all those sort of cliche things. Um are the same for both anxiety and excitement. So if you just look at it as a positive and realize you can harness it for better performance, then then yeah, it's worth using it. Where do you think you got that from? I mean, there's so many people out there and I'm sure, you know, you're not absolutely fearless. I'm sure there are things, you know, just the same as everyone else. But where do you think that stems from, having that kind of ability to turn that anxiety into in excitement and drive? Um, I mean, Honestly, when I started in sport, there were times when I came to big races and I would underperform because it did get the better of me. Um, So it's definitely a learned technique. Uh, But I think part of it has actually probably come through years with my disability that I've had to cope on many occasions and being in situations that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, Mm. So putting yourself out there, you know, I particularly can't see very well in poor level lighting. So anytime I'm out in an evening, I feel quite unsafe and I tend I walk with a white cane in those situations and you know I can't really see what's going on around me but I can never shy away and not go outdoors when it's dark so there are occasions when I have to go out somewhere I've not been before and just that putting yourself out there dealing with it and coming away and everything's fine I think you just realize that it's all right to be scared and anxious sometimes and um, you know it's not necessarily a negative thing. Yeah and I suppose it's small steps isn't it really like you said the I know it doesn't feel small but going outside and having that little bit of fear but then actually coming back and going actually you know that 10 minutes I was outside was okay so maybe 15 next time and it's it's amazing really that the smaller steps build up to really a marathon don't they over time oh absolutely and I'll be honest that when I was younger my disability was an issue that there were often times I wouldn't do things mm. um again if you're not sure about something it's it's a great excuse when you you can't see or you know it's very easy <laughs> yeah. to come up with those reasons so um, for many years, I wouldn't go out in an evening. So my social circle became quite small when I was a teenager. I didn't go to things like gigs or out to bars or anything. So, And it wasn't until probably I was in my, my later teens when you start to become a bit more comfortable with yourself as a person that I was more comfortable to push myself out and do those things. So yeah, it was little steps. And it took a lot longer than 
than perhaps it should have done but you know you have to go you've also got a lot further than most people would have done so actually I think there's a balance there isn't there yeah absolutely I'm you know I'm glad that I've taken the path I have and there was times that were particularly dark on the route to get here but it's all been worth it in the end so how did you get into it um we spoke before and you mentioned that you were about 10 were you when you started in sport yeah so I was a a very competitive, hyperactive child. So my parents were keen to ship me off to try any physical activity they could <laughs> just to burn some energy. Calm me down, yeah. And um, I found athletics as my first sport, and that freedom of just going as fast as you can was something I loved. Just that simplicity of you could just run fast. I mean, as a kid, you run everywhere anyway, so it seemed like the obvious choice to me. Mm. And I fell in love with that, and it was something I, despite my eyesight, I could. My eyesight has deteriorated, so it was better when I was younger, but I could just train as an able-bodied athlete with all the, the other kids, and it was fine. And I just loved the pushing myself and that element of competition and just competing for my local club and enjoying sport, really, and, and developing friendships and things. It was very much a social thing for many, many years. And the thought of being a, a full-time athlete really was just a dream and something that I never expected would happen to me in later life. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. Did did you have those limiting beliefs when you were younger, thinking that you would never be able to get there? Or do you think deep down you always kind of knew that that was a road you wanted to go down to get into something more professional? Being completely honest, um, I, I had a lot of limiting beliefs and, and many of them were justified mm. at the time. I was quite a late developer. So in a sporting sense, from about the age of 13 to 16 or 17, I fell behind just physically from everyone else and competing in age groups. It meant for that period, I finished last in almost every single race I did. Um, And there's no way at that point I thought I could be an international athlete. It was more, I I just did it for fun. I learned how to set targets to beat my own performance rather than beating other people, which I think proved to be really useful in later life in sport. That's a great tip for everybody, I think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we all want to win, of course, but you're not always going to be the winner and you can actually achieve by just making that self-improvement a little bit. Improvement every day is, is amazing. Um, you don't have to be number one in the world to to be good at something. Mm-hmm. And just learning how to cope with defeat as well, I think, was, was really important. So um, those years, I think, at the time, they were fun because I enjoyed the sport, but it wasn't fun from a competition point of view. But they proved to be vital, I think, as I, I went on to sport, uh, later life in sport and actually started to become quite successful. Because really, I think even though you weren't doing it to kind of progress to, you know, the level that you are at now, there are so many lessons that came from it, which kind of help you, you know, where you are now. And, and even just getting your confidence socially, learning more about your body and, you know, getting that kind of self-confidence probably was a huge step for you to be able to move forward into professional sport absolutely massively particularly Mm -hmm. as you alluded to there that social aspect as I said earlier as I got into my kind of later teens I was kind of refraining from going out in an evening which is hugely limiting when you come from Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland during the winter daylight is is pretty minimal at the best of times so my social circle was getting really small at school and um quite isolating yeah it was very isolating but sport had kind of gave me that reprieve where I was making friends who had similar interests to me and you know I was quite sociable there and it really did help me develop as a person and 
I think that particularly people, I mean, at that age, it's tough for, for many people, but I think particularly those with disabilities is still yeah. sometimes a bit of a stigma at school where if you're a little bit different, then, you know, it can be tough. And it's funny how once you leave school that actually we all want to stand out from the crowd and you know, once <laughs> yeah. I left school, it all became much better. And suddenly my disability was something I could actually use for benefit and getting into disability sport was was one of those things. So how did you make the transition from not being anywhere near wanting to go to, you know, a professional level to being the level that you're at now? Do you remember when that changed? Yeah, there's been a couple of points in that journey. The first point was I stopped losing every single race at about the age of 17 when I seemed to catch up (laughs) and just one day. grew into yourself. Yeah, it was incredible. And my personal best sort of improved by huge chunks just suddenly, seemingly overnight. And I was winning the odd race again and actually being reasonably competitive. And I think just suddenly that that feeling of actually you know, you're not too bad at this really kind of spurred me on to, to dig in. Mm. And I I almost became a full-time athlete from that point just because I loved that I was improving and getting better and actually seeing results. But it, honestly, I didn't really know what the Paralympics were and I never considered my eyesight to be bad enough to be considered a Paralympic athlete because it was something I'd grown up with I never really realized how bad my sight necessarily is and so that was never on my radar until I think someone just suggested to me I met someone else who was involved in para sport and they suggested that I should go and get my eyes checked to see if I could be eligible and it turned out I could have been for many years and that kind of just opened a door where suddenly I was getting a little bit of interest from Scottish athletics at the time and then the GB squad for their their Paralympic team where I got brought onto the the development program kind of from nowhere really and suddenly my hobby became something that was potentially a, a future career. I suppose it just opened that door for you really so that you had something that you could really aim for and it's kind of changed from something that you were doing because you enjoyed it to actually you've got this kind of goal that's opened up for you that you can kind of really push towards. Yeah and it was a it was quite a bizarre time when you're something that's your hobby almost becomes your job it's quite a, a tough transition um yeah. but you know it was an incredible opportunity and one that I was sure I was going to make the most of and that that happened around the end towards the end of studying my degree at university so it kind of fell in at a really good time that just as I was finishing university I transitioned to this full-time athlete and um almost saved me having to think about what I was going to do for a real job <laughs> it was really nice and did you stay were you still in running at this point yeah so I actually um I graduated in 2006 and I was a full-time athlete up until the Beijing Paralympic Games and I basically made the the GB squad for that those games by the skin of my teeth I was pretty much the last man on the the team I think Mm. and that was a, a huge achievement just to make it to the Paralympic Games being a Paralympian I felt like was kind of the end goal for me really just to see I'd been there at the highest level and certainly there was never any thought of medals. But I went to those games and, you know, landed in Beijing and instantly there were flags everywhere for the Paralympic Games. I'd happened to watch the Olympics just a few weeks earlier and seen those, the games that Usain Bolt burst onto the scene and yeah, yeah. on the athletics track and took the world by storm. And I knew I'd be running on that very track. And I, That's just an experience in itself, isn't it? Just to go there and see that, you know, all playing out. Yeah, and it was just... I didn't realize how big the Paralympics were even at that stage and mm-hmm. walked into the the Paralympic village and 
it's this uh, incredible place that's it's fenced off it's like airport security to get in and it's where all the athletes stay before and during the games and there were just thousands of people there you know in kit from all across the globe all with different disabilities and it's this immensely diverse place that I just fell in love with straight away it was just like no place on earth at all nothing I'd experienced before and the venues and everything were just huge I was running in a, a 90,000 uh, seater stadium the bird's nest and wow. just turning up there and looking at it and you know I was training at a, a venue in Aberdeen that probably could sit about 200 at most yeah. on little benches you know it was just a, it's absurd to be in this venue and it was just just massive and I know many athletes as well and lots of people like to hear about the food hall but I mean walking in there and you could get food from anywhere across the globe and it could seat thousands of people at any one time effing was just huge and overwhelming but yeah it was just an incredible experience and I raced in the 100 and 200 meters and I in the heats um overall I finished ninth in both my races with the top eight making the final so it was quite a tough game from that point so of view close, I had to, yeah, yeah just you know less than a tenth of a second and I, I would have been in the final oh had, gosh had to sit in the stands and, and watch my rivals racing in front of 90,000 people in the final and it was just it was hard but I'd fallen in love with the games at that point and I knew that the London games were just four years away and I thought there could be nothing greater surely than competing in your home nation yeah. at an event of this scale you know so I had kind of renewed hope and I went home all ready to kind of kick into gear and take that next step and then I got a phone call actually at that point from my manager at UK Athletics who told me that they didn't think I had the, the potential to make it to London and my funding was being cut completely oh, no. at that point. And that was it. It was job done. And essentially, that was my sporting career done, done and dusted at that point, mm. which, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, was a, a fairly tough time. Yeah. But I can look back now and say it was a, a time that was highly beneficial to me um, and has led to better things. As, as we've alluded to, I've had a lot of success since, but that was the end of my athletic days and the point at which I thought my sport was done. And I started looking for, for a proper job, as I said before. I mean, really, how do you go from Paralympics to getting a proper job? I mean, it's just you sitting in an office thinking, oh, my God, this just is so far away from, you know, the road that you were on kind of a few weeks beforehand. I mean, it's just such a huge transition to have to kind of move into that thought process alone. I mean, it must have just been absolutely almost like the world was coming to an end. Yeah, I mean, there's something that happens generally at the end of games as well that it's such a as I say there's so many people around you in the athletes village you're surrounded by hype and just it's almost a frenzy the whole time so there's always an inevitable come down off of that anyway Mm. um you come home and it's all quiet and all your friends are at work and so I did struggle with that anyway but then this added thing of course of yeah this this is all over was was really quite tough and I did go through a bit of a period of depression really where I I was struggling to get the motivation to do anything and I was applying for jobs um anything really because I knew that I needed to start earning some money but it was at that point I started to realize that there was still uh, an aspect where my disability seemed to be a bit of an issue as well with getting a job in many sort of work environments where just out of interest what mm, were you applying for um all manner of things really and even from like secretarial jobs, I applied yeah. for kind of data input with the police and other things, some some sort of disability job roles within the university, which is something that did actually interest me more than some of the other ones did. Yeah. But yeah. it was kind of just a desperate 
apply for everything. But um, I was generally finding I was either not suitable for jobs because they, they figured I was uh, actually planning to move on to other things sooner rather than just, just sticking around with them or yeah. often that question of how do you think your disability is going to impact the job, which was um, an interesting question I, I didn't expect us to answer, but did. And hopefully things have changed a lot since then. But I, I realized at that point that maybe my disability was actually going to be an issue in the workplace. and More limiting than you thought, maybe. Mm, and then it became... Uh, yeah, going down the job centre and getting job seekers allowance, and uh, it felt like oh it was just a, you know sinking into this horrendous hole of um, this is this is it now. This is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my days. And you know, so it <laughs> oh was my uh, gosh. It was dark. I just can't imagine like the thought process, and I mean, everyone that you speak to who has been through a really tough time, and you're just kind of trying to find a way out, and it's almost like every door's closing. I just can't imagine that kind of soul-destroying time of just thinking this is it. Yeah, but... um, How did you kind of turn it all around? What was your kind of, you know, you were trying all these doors and they were all closed. How did you kind of find the one that was open and and get back into into sport? Yeah, I can't remember the exact moment it happened, but I know I, um, I woke up one day and kind of had enough really had enough of feeling sorry for myself and it hadn't been that long it'd been a few months it was getting towards the end of 2008 and I just thought you know what the London games are four years away and I cannot bear to be sitting at home watching it on tv I just need to find a way to be there yeah so I researched every single sport that's part of the Paralympics where visually impaired people can compete and I decided I was going to try every single one until I found one that I might just be good enough at that I could possibly get to those games. And it became a, I just had this target now. I had a direction and drive, a, a reason to do things. Yeah, um, yeah. So suddenly it was it was very easy to be motivated. And I, it just so happened that cycling was the a sport that I loved anyway. I loved watching and I thought, I'll give that one a try first. And I, I decided to call up the Veldrome in Manchester because they have these things called taster sessions where basically anyone can come along and, and try riding around the velodrome. Yeah. And I got in touch with them, booked on, didn't tell them I couldn't see very well, just in case they didn't let me on the track. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I turned up, um, went down to Manchester, stayed with a friend, turned up and kind of got on the bike and made sure I didn't ride too close to anyone and wobbled my way around and didn't crash, thankfully. And by chance, at the end of that session, there was a, a great British cycling session taking place just after that. It's where British cycling are based as a team. Mm. And there was a guy warming up for the session who noticed I had some a, a Paralympic backpack. And he said, kind of got chatting about the games. And he said, oh, he'd been to two Olympic Games himself. And uh, he'd actually just transitioned from the able-bodied team over to the Paralympic team. And what he was was a pilot. And that's someone who rides on the front of a tandem and he needed a visually impaired athlete to ride on the back of the bike with him. Oh my gosh, it's just like fate. It's just come yeah. and yeah, sailed pure it. Pure chance, pure chance. I just bumped into him and, and we just kept in touch and he kind of fast-tracked me getting in touch with with people from the team. He kind of set me a bit of a training program as well and put a lot of time and effort into me, which was great. And things progressed immensely quickly for me from that point where I got spotted by the team and I was harassing them on a almost daily basis as to like when's the next <laughs> trial you know when can I come and try next and just pushed really really hard and eventually I think they got sick of me and let me come and try and uh, it just went just went really well 
they were probably like, my gosh, if he pushes this hard just to come, imagine how hard he'll push to win it. So yeah, they probably like that attitude. It's probably quite a good thing. And is that who, if you, do you still ride with that person or did things move on from there? No, things have progressed. I'm, I've been with quite a few different riders. I guess I'm uh, arguably quite loose in that respect. But yeah. uh, <laughs> we uh, we get, basically, I, I don't choose who I ride with, but British okay. Cycling make that decision. So over the years, I've ridden primarily with four different pilots. Um, but he is one of the ones that we did go on to win uh, two World Championships and two Commonwealth Games gold medals as well. So um, Amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. It's just, yeah, you've just kind of met your teammate and it kind of just kind of propelled you into the next stage. What's your training schedule like? So, yeah, we're, we're very fortunate that we're in the UK. We are funded as full-time athletes. So that allows me to, to train, you know, essentially as though it's my job. So mm-hmm. I'm training six days a week. I get one day a week off. And often you're doing at least two training sessions in that day. So I'm quite often, I'm, I'm a sprint athlete, so a lot of my time spent in the gym trying to be as big as I can be. And then on the track and the velodrome quite often as well. So it's it's quite an intense full-on program. And we're, we're very lucky with British Cycling that, as I say, we're based in Manchester as a, a whole team. And everyone's expected to to be based around the velodrome there. But we have a huge amount of support staff. And, you know, it's been a very successful sport in recent years. So we're very fortunate that we've got some decent sponsors as well that are are helping um, providing us with kit and nutrition and uh, I'm in quite a privileged place where you can basically focus on your training um, and solely your training and not have to worry about all the, the small details which is, is great so it's um it's a lifestyle more than just a job because uh, anytime I'm not training I'm essentially just resting or planning for the next training session to ensure that I'm in the best physical condition I can be going into it every day and making the most of every single training session you can. Yeah, because, I mean, like you said, there's such a close from getting through or not getting through is so close. And I think that just goes to show how absolutely on point you need to be because that split second can can cost you or make you, can't it really? Yeah, precisely. And and as I kind of alluded to earlier, I mean, most of our funding comes down to Olympic and Paralympic Games. And that happens once every four years. And at the moment, I have one of my events is in the Paralympic Games so you've got this one race every four years that really is what it's all down to um so it's these fine fine margins if you get it wrong on that one occasion that's it you're you're done and someone else is going to be in for the next you know world championships or whatever so you know our funding is is kind of based every year on our performance and it it is very ruthless Mm -hmm. but that's why we're so successful as a nation in sport at the moment um is that process and you know there are always younger athletes who are keen to come up and take your place. And I'm very well aware there there are a few who would love to have the job I currently have. Yeah, absolutely. But like you said, you are still leading and they are chasing. So fingers crossed you have a few more years of that to come. Yeah, hopefully. I'm certainly not planning on giving up just yet anyway. No, <laughs> no, I'm sure. So how, you've also got something else which you're transitioning into, which is your business coaching. Do you want to just talk briefly about that? Yeah, so what I've kind of noticed um, in recent years is that there are immense similarities between the worlds of sport and business where, you know, high performance is, is everything and being that fraction ahead of the, the game is is huge to performance. And it's something we kind of discussed about earlier a little bit with mindset and things that I've realized that performing at the highest level, I've actually 
learned quite a few skills over the years, um, whether yeah. intentionally or not. Um, it's since I've been reflecting back on my career after that came about, actually, after a, a slightly poor performance at the Paralympics in 2016, where I had to do a lot of soul searching and self-reflection that I realized that I actually had picked up a lot of skills over the years and I wasn't just a, a sportsman. Mm. And I realized that those those kind of insights and lessons that I've learned from the world of elite sport can be transferred over to people in in whatever they do. And I say particularly at that cutting edge of the, the business world, that, that kind of aspects of finding your motivation for doing what you're doing, how you go about performing day in day out to ensure that your performance at the end is as the best it can be and therefore hopefully the best in the world is um it's quite a huge deal and it's not something that I think a lot of people necessarily learn other than by doing and I'm hoping that I can kind of impart some of that knowledge onto people to to get the best out of themselves yeah and I think there's so many you hit the nail on the head really I think there's so many untapped opportunities that people already have in their businesses that if they kind of made the most out of those tiny things I think even you know 10% in each area it would just kind of you know that tenth of a second you know that split second Mm. that you you missed out on that that tiny amount of difference could make such a difference you know overall and we said the same with our team development team development module that we do with our growth methodology we actually go in and work with the teams because your teams, you're already paying for them. They're already there. Actually, you need to make sure that they're really, really working, you know, at a really, really high level because that's kind of the ideal way for you to kind of progress and get better. Yeah, and um, British Cycling were, were made very famous for this, particularly during, it's about the time I came on really from, it was from Beijing onwards when uh, Sir, now Sir Dave Beresford was in charge and he made very famous the, the aggregation of marginal gains, which was the belief that if you just make this minuscule improvement in, in many areas, you'll make a huge gain overall. And that's something that became yeah. very big in British Cycling, where we looked at the fine details. So, for instance, um, at the London Games, rather than all the cyclists going, and often when you go into a Games Village, the mattresses aren't very good, and so your, your sleep's affected. So what we all had were these uh, beds that were made up for us that we could take to the village they were sort of transportable we didn't have to carry them thankfully because they were pretty heavy um but it meant you were you'd sleep on it before you went to the game so you got used to it you went to the games and you slept on this bed so nothing changed so you you know it would help with your sleeping patterns we look at just small things like obviously the nutrition and the food you're eating and and even tiny things like one of the ones kind of people laugh about is the even the workshop uh, where the mechanics kind of do all the bike building they, they realized that if it wasn't spotlessly clean all the time, that tiny fragments of dust getting into things could affect performance by minuscule amounts. But they yeah. realized that was an issue. And so it became a thing where it had to be absolutely spotless in the, the mechanics room at all time just to ensure that there was no, no dust floating about or anything. And just all these little areas we looked at. And I think that can be taken over to the business world as well, where, you know, it's always, it's always easy to try and, figure out what oh, the next big thing that you could do to make a big impact could be. But in reality, that 
there's probably a lot of answers that are right there in front of you, as you've said. Yeah, um, yeah you can finally tune changes. what you've already got. Yeah, finally mm. tune what you've already got just to make, you know, the small changes first. And, yeah, makes a huge difference. I think you put it a lot more eloquently than me with <laughs> aggregate, sure. marginal gains. But it's true, definitely. And that's the type of thing that you're working on now. Is that, uh, have you got that up and running? What, you know, whereabouts? How do you how do you fit it all in? <laughs> yeah, that, that is the challenge. And um, I... During my real competitive season, I, I kind of do switch my focus back to cycling because um, if I don't, then yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to lose. That's the reality of it. So yeah, I think I'm yeah. focused on it. But I do have off season where I can spend a little bit more of my kind of free time doing things. So we've really been setting the groundwork up, and I'm I'm still in the process, as you know yourself, of uh, writing a book at this point about this this very topic, and that's something I'm hoping to get out by the uh, the Paralympics in 2020 but yeah it's something where I'm, I'm trialing at the minute I'm, I'm, I'm working with a, a few companies just to see what works and what doesn't and how to to make things from kind of from the sporting world how I can translate them over to the business world in a way that it's most effective so it's something where I'm actively doing so that post 2020 it's a business that will be up and running and in full swing and um, so if I do decide to step down from sport at that point which uh I'm not saying yes or no to at this point, so you're not getting any exclusive there. Um, But it'd be good to have that option if I needed it. Yeah, definitely, because I don't think going back to the job centre is going to be a good step. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I couldn't do it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I realise people have to do it, and... um, but it is it's quite a degrading experience, but it was also quite a motivating experience at the same time. Absolutely. And I think um, any time anybody kind of gets any type of challenge, it really sets off that whole soul searching piece where you start to think, actually, is this what I want? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, what do I want? How do I achieve that? And that level of self-reflection, I believe in those darkest times, like you've proven and shown, you know, just by this interview, that's really either, you know, really motivating and sets sets you up for something completely, you know, that's on the right path for you, really. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, as you said there, they kind of, it's almost that like finding, finding your why, um, your driver, your direction. And sometimes you, you can't see that until you are at that point where you're at your low. Um, and you do need to go through those tough times just to get that clarity that this is what I want to do and this is what I want to do in my life. And until you have that, I don't think you can ever be hugely successful in what you do until you really have that passion. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we work with our clients on as well. It's just making sure that they really align to their to their purpose and their why because I think it really does give you that drive it really gives you that clarity it gets you up in the morning you know you you know when you said before that you weren't feeling that great actually it was something else even if it was just searching on the internet to find a way just find a way I think it really carries you through the tougher times if you've got that bigger bigger purpose without a doubt and and equally even when the times are good it's quite easy and I do this in sport regularly is to go a bit off track with what training I'm doing and kind of forgetting what the end goal actually is until you actually sit back and think, well, why am I doing this? And you realize what the big picture is at the end and you reevaluate, therefore, what you're doing at that point in time. It's easy to forget. So it's not just when the times are tough, but equally, even when the going's good, I think you need to remind yourself of why you're doing it. Especially if it is tough and, and, and it sounds like, you know, with your training schedule, you probably need a quite a good reminder to get you through the uh, the six days a week and and everything else um just briefly can you just run us through your 
it's a hereditary condition that you have? Yeah, so my condition is it's quite a common one in, in the visually impaired world, um, retinitis pigmentosa, which is a degenerative condition. And yeah, it's hereditary. So I got it from my mum. I like to thank her for that from time yeah. to time. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was young, I was diagnosed around the age of five. And the point I was diagnosed, I remember quite vividly, actually, it was uh, it was Christmas Day and we were at my grand's house and it was just starting to come dark down dark outside and my cousins wanted to go out and play and as did I at that age and being very competitive as I've alluded to I wanted to be the first one out into the back garden so I ran as fast as I could and ran straight into the washing line pole um, which was quite upsetting at the time but I got taken back in and got a nice hug from my mum which was good but then I could hear I remember it quite vividly my mum saying to my dad do you think he's got it Yeah, yeah yeah I think he's got it and I didn't know what it was at that point so it was quite scary but it turns out, yeah, it was just a, just an eye condition, um, which is something I've been able to to live with. And it's degenerated over time, so it's something I'm, I've grown accustomed to. But my level of sight, just to give you some, some idea, currently, I don't have any peripheral vision, so I often I don't see things coming from the sides or up above, and I often walk into things at low level, like bollards and things like that, particularly yeah. wet floor signs, by the way, they are horrific. <laughs> That, that's okay that's a little bit of an ironic uh, thing to trip over <laughs> yeah it is it's terrible and if there's one in any shop I will inevitably seek it out and and make a scene by knocking it down um they are my my absolute nemesis in life you have no idea um but my central vision is compared to everything else is quite good but it's quite blurry so I can see objects from quite far away so maybe a double-decker bus from one to 200 meters I can see down the road but until it's actually at the bus stop, I can't tell what number of bus it actually is. Yeah. And also, I have that I struggle with facial recognition. Um, I don't get real clarity of people's faces. So, um, yeah, don't don't be offended if I ever walk past you, Sonia. <laughs> You'll know me. My, the the <laughs> noise comes before my face. Everybody knows I'm there because they, they can hear me. Usually. I didn't want to say. Yeah, I didn't want to say. <laughs> oh, Sonia's here. <laughs> <laughs> How do you cope with going round on the bike with your? with your visual impairment surely that must just be a heart racing experience yeah so as I mentioned I, I do ride on the back of a tandem so I've mm. got a fully sighted person in front who we both do the pedaling they do the steering so that takes at least that responsibility out of it but obviously I'm placing a, a lot of trust in them because I have no control at all well I in theory I can control a little bit where we go but it's best I don't when I can't see where I'm going yeah <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we ran the velodrome, which is 250 meters, and it's very steep bankings at either yeah. side. Um, it's, I think it's, well, most tracks are around 43 degrees, so it's pretty steep. Yeah. And we're traveling at top speed around there at just around, just under 50 miles an hour at peak. Wow. So it's incredibly quick, and there's a lot of G-force involved. And, you know, unfortunately, I've never had any big crashes, but I have seen a few and I know that if you do fall off the bike at that speed, wearing just Lycra, that it's uh, pretty unforgiving. So <laughs> I'd rather not uh, fall down. And that's why I have to place a lot of trust in who I ride with. And probably why, yeah, I choose to only ride with people who are very experienced and uh, who I know know what they're doing and value their own life as well. Well, that is the thing, I suppose. You're both cycling towards the same goal, which is to not come off. So I suppose uh, that's one saving grace. But I just couldn't imagine. I mean, 50 miles an hour, even going that fast on a on a bike is enough. But without being able to actually see properly, just must, yeah, you're so, so brave. I really, really think you're really incredible for what you've achieved. Uh, some would say brave, some would say stupid, I guess. 
Well, I think it's a bit like anxiety and, and uh, we were talking about before with anxiety and excitement. I think brave and stupid are just as close. Yes, very true, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Neil. I hope you've enjoyed it and it's been a really, really incredible interview. So um, what I will do is I'll leave some notes just below the podcast and I'll leave your Twitter and Instagram in there uh, just so that people can keep up with how you know your training's going um, and we'll see you when you're on um, when you're doing the world championships yeah yeah follow me on, uh, on Twitter particularly and uh, I'll, I'll try and keep everyone updated with how it's going and hopefully have a, a shot from top of the podium all going well oh good luck and hopefully you get two more medals <laughs> yeah thank you very much I'll certainly give it my best <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Watching you, watching you.